We can now continue to discuss the topic of how Koreans overseas managed to play such a key role during Japan's colonial rule, even from afar. So let's bring in Wayne Patterson, Professor of History at St. Norbert College, author of The Korean Frontier in America, Immigration to Hawaii, which obviously ties in particularly well with our discussion just a few moments ago. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Alex. And Professor Patterson, this subject of Koreans in Hawaii is obviously an area of great interest for you. They weren't the only immigrant community uh, on these plantations. What made them stand out? Well, you're right, Alex. Uh, They weren't the only immigrant community in Hawaii. In fact, there were 32 different uh, ethnic groups working in Hawaii, uh, mostly on the sugar plantations. And uh, the Koreans themselves, being one of the smaller of these 32 groups, uh, had two characteristics that caused them to stand out. One was that out of the 32, they were the fastest ones to leave the sugar plantations and move into the the city, uh, Honolulu, which uh, was essentially a step upward on the ladder of success. And the second thing that distinguished them was their intense nationalism. If you asked any other ethnic group to say what they knew about Koreans, the first thing out of their mouth would be, oh, they're the Koreans, they're very nationalistic, very anti-Japanese. It must also, though, have been a struggle to survive, to adapt, to retain Korean heritage among all those different nationalities in a whole new land. I've personally looked extensively at diaspora studies. It is very interesting what happens to a group of people when they are in another country. Um, What do you think they did to actually preserve that tradition, uh, even that anti-Japanese sentiment so strongly? Well, uh, what they did, of course, was uh, the first generation, the ill say, if you will, uh, formed uh, nationalistic groups uh, to oppose Japan formally. One was called the Korean National Association, or the Gungmin Hui, and the other one was called the Dongji Hui, or the Comrade Society, both of which were devoted to uh, ridding Korea of Japanese colonial rule. Uh, in, uh, in their society as a whole, uh, they found it was difficult in times to maintain their Korean identity because um, when they stepped outside their house, uh, chances are their next-door neighbor might have been Japanese or Chinese or white. And so uh, this was especially true of the second generation who uh, became quickly uh, Americanized. And uh, some of the findings I found was that uh, when the parents took their children to the uh, meetings of the Gungmin Hui, the parents were confronted with their children saying something like, well, Mom, Dad, I'm, I'm sorry about your country, um, but uh, I'm an American. So uh, they, they certainly face problems in maintaining Korean identity. Also, um, the change in this pattern of immigration, this, this uh, rapid influx, and then suddenly a, a change under Japanese rule, how did that affect things? 
Uh, could you repeat that, Alex? I'm sorry, there was a... Yeah, well, well, the, the change in the pattern of immigration, how did that affect things under Japanese rule? Well, the Japanese, as you might know uh, from my book that you were kind enough to cite at the beginning, uh, were the ones that actually stopped Koreans from going to Hawaii uh, because, for one thing, they found out that when Koreans got into a place like America where there was freedom of speech, press, and assembly, uh, they could speak freely about the Japanese oppression of their homeland. And uh, because they stopped the Koreans from coming, the only ones that came after that were about a thousand picture brides, who were, of course, women who joined the men who had gone earlier, and uh, incidentally, who could speak uh, giving chapter and verse to the Japanese oppression because they had lived under... Japanese colonial rule, and they came between 1910 and 1924. Uh, so that was, uh, uh, there weren't many Koreans who came after that. There were a few that came in by way of Russia or China, but for the most part, the Koreans didn't come again in any great numbers until after uh, liberation in 1945. Another area of, of your interest has been Mexico. Uh, in fact, over a thousand immigrants who headed to Mexico in the early 20th century were faced with even more severe conditions. Why was that? Well, the uh, yes, I have written about that, and uh, it turned out that a thousand Koreans did go to Mexico in 1905, and it turned out that uh, Korea had no diplomatic relations with Mexico, so there was no one to look out for them once they got there. They were sent to haciendas where there was contract labor, so they couldn't leave until their four-year contracts were up. And the Gungmin Hui sent a representative down there to investigate, and the phrase that they used was nunmuli maniasunida, meaning there were many tears being shed by the poor treatment of these Koreans in Mexico. So it was really a terrible, terrible situation. And uh, I might add that uh, there's a documentary coming out by a New York filmmaker who's talking about the Koreans in Mexico, and uh, some of whom went over to Cuba in 1914. The name of this documentary, if your viewers want to keep an eye out, is Geronimo, which was the name of one of these Koreans who went to Mexico and then went to Cuba. Interesting. Um, There is actually such a a vast history, so much interest from various ethnic groups making their way to North and South America uh, between the uh, latter part of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century. And, And obviously those Koreans play a very important role when we look at the independence movement. But particularly certain parts of Russia and mainland China are seen as as being the cradles of that independence movement rather than South and North America. What was the main difference? Is it just geography? Well, geography does play a part, but uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, If you look at the role of China, for example, it was very easy for Koreans to escape to China because all they had to do was walk over the frozen Yalu River in the wintertime 
There were no passport controls or anything like that. And uh, they could live in and set up a community in what is now called Yenbian. And uh, it should also be remembered that the provisional government in exile was founded in 1919 in Shanghai, which of course is in China. And there were 200,000 Koreans who went to Russia in the area just south of Vladivostok. And uh, their story is an interesting one because in 1937, Stalin wasn't sure whose side they were on, that is, the side of Russia or the side of Japan. So he put all 200,000 in boxcars and sent them to Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. And so that's where most of the Koreans in Russia and what used to be the former Soviet Union uh, find themselves now with their descendants. They're known as Koleo Salam. Can we also touch on the changes in the Korean community um, as the Second World War neared its end, uh, approaching independence, um, with those preparing for the establishment of a new government? How important was the American community? Was was there a a significant participation? Because we know about some key individual figures who were absolutely vital. Of course, the uh, the man who would become leader, Sung Man Rhee, among them. Right. Well, actually, when uh, when World War II began, or I should say the Pacific War, after the attack on Pearl Harbor, the uh, Koreans and the United States tried to unite because they sensed that their liberation was at hand. And uh, despite the fact that they tried to unite, uh, there were still people who uh, remained opposed to Syngman Rhee, uh, and so the community, the Korean community, remained kind of uh, disorganized in, in that sense. The, um, there was a group called the United Korean Community, uh, Committee, I'm sorry, who went to Korea right after liberation, wanting to help out, and found that Syngman Rhee uh, ignored them, and so they came back uh, disappointed and dejected because they weren't able to contribute to their newly found independence of their uh, of their country. And uh, to make matters even worse, the United States government, like Stalin, wasn't sure whose side the Koreans were on during World War II, and so the Koreans were actually spied on by the American government to make sure that they weren't working for the Japanese. Right. And, uh, there were even some people who said, well, we should lock them up just like we locked up the Japanese, because uh, who knows, they might be enemies of the United States. C- certainly anything but a straightforward picture, Professor Patterson. Thank you so much for helping us negotiate it today. We're out of time. Okay, thank you, Alex. And uh, great to have you on the line. Professor Wayne Patterson of St. Norbert College, uh, at the forefront of some of the academia looking into this history of the independence movement. Have a good National Liberation Day. Career Escape with Cardation continues next. We'll be back tomorrow at 7.05.